The title of this surah refers to verse 16 in which the name Mary is mentioned. Period of Revelation This surah was revealed before some companions of the Prophet, peace be upon him, emigrated to Abyssinia. We learn from authentic traditions that when these Muslim emigrants were summoned to the court of Negus, Jafar al-Tayyar recited this very surah in his court in front of a large crowd of people. Historical Background in the introduction to the preceding surah Al-Kahf, some of the conditions prevailing at the time when that surah was revealed have been explained. What we said there, however, is not sufficient for a full appreciation of the contents of the present surah, nor for others revealed during this period. Hence, it is useful to spend some time now outlining the conditions obtaining at that time. The Quraysh chiefs attempted to suppress the Islamic movement by deriding and ridiculing the Prophet's followers, by tempting and threatening them, and by making allegations against them. However, when all these means failed to achieve their desired purpose, they resorted to physical and economic pressures, to persecution and imprisonment, to subjecting the Muslims to starvation and torture, so as to compel them to forsake their faith. The worst sufferers, of course, were the poor, the slaves, and those who lived under the tutelage of the Quraysh. Among the worst hit were Bilal, Amir ibn Fuhira, Umar Abbas, Zanira, and Amar ibn Yasir and his parents. They were beaten mercilessly, interned for days without food and water, and were made to lie on the scorching muckin sands with boulders placed across their chests so that they writhed in pain for hours. In similar fashion, professional Muslims were asked to work, but they were thwarted by persistent delays in the payment of their wages. Thus, in Al-Bukhari and Muslim, the following tradition was transmitted by Ibn Arat. I used to work in Makkah as an ironsmith, as Ibn Wa'il engaged me to work for him, but when I went to collect my wages, he refused to pay saying that unless I forsook the Prophet, peace be upon him, he would not pay me my wages. Likewise, efforts were made to wreck traders' business, and those with a good position in society were disgraced in a number of ways. Some glimpse of this situation is afforded by Khabab's report. He states, One day, while the Prophet, peace be upon him, was taking rest under the shade of the Kaaba, I went to him and said, O Messenger of Allah, Oppression has now reached its limit. Would you not pray to God? On hearing this, the Prophet's face turned red and he said, Believers before you were subjected to greater oppression. Their bones were scraped with combs of iron. Their heads were cut with saws. Yet they did not abandon their faith. Believe me, God will help accomplish this mission. There will come a day when a person will journey from Sana'a to Hadramaut, and there will be no reason for him to fear anyone except God. You, however, are too impatient. In Rajab, during the fifth year of the prophethood, which corresponds to the forty-fifth year of the elephant, most probably 615 CE, the situation became almost intolerable. The Prophet, peace be upon him, told his companions, 
you may now go forth to Abyssinia, for there is a king in whose realm injustice is done to no one. It is a land of truth. Stay there till God provides a way out of your affliction. In compliance with this directive, eleven men and four women initially migrated to Abyssinia. The Quraysh pursued them as far as the coast. However, these Muslim migrants were fortunate enough to catch a boat from the port of Shueba, heading for Abyssinia, and this enabled them to escape arrest. After a few months, another group of Muslims migrated, making the total number of migrants 83 men, 11 women, and 7 non-Quraysh Muslims. Only 40 companions were now left behind with the Prophet, peace be upon him, in Makkah. This emigration caused much distress throughout Makkah, for the migrants to Abyssinia included someone from virtually every family. If one of these migrants was someone's son, he was also someone else's son-in-law. Daughters, brothers, and sisters had left their families for Abyssinia. To name just a few, there was Abu Jahl's brother, Salama ibn Hisham, his cousins, Hashim ibn Abi Hudefa and Ayash ibn Abi Rabia, and the daughter of his uncle, Um Salama, Abu Sufyan's daughter, Um Habiba, Abu Hudefa, who was Utbah's son, and Hind's brother, Suhail ibn Amr's daughter, Sahla. Also among these migrants to Abyssinia were the children of several Quraysh chiefs, their fathers the enemies of Islam. They too had forsaken their hurts and homes for the sake of their faith. Thus there was hardly anyone in Makkah who had not been affected by this emigration, and inevitably some were hardened in their hostility toward Islam as a result. By the same token, however, some people were so touched by the incident that they eventually embraced Islam. The position of Umar ibn al-Khattab is a case in point, for this was the first in a series of events which blunted his hostility towards Islam. According to a report narrated by Layla bint Abi Hatma, one of Umar's close relatives tells the following story. I was packing my things ready for migration while my husband Amir ibn Rabia went out in connection with some errand. In the meantime, Umar came to our house and watched me pack up. Then he said, O mother of Abdullah, are you leaving? I replied, By God, you have persecuted us a great deal. However, God's vast earth is open to us. We can migrate to some place where God will give us peace. Omer's face displayed signs of him having been moved, signs I had never seen before. He only said, God be with you, and then he rushed out. After these waves of emigration, the Quraysh chiefs held consultations and resolved that Abdullah ibn Abi Rabia, Abu Jahl's maternal brother, and Abra ibn al-As, should be sent on a mission to Abyssinia to persuade Negus to send the Muslim migrants back to Makkah with the valuable gifts they were to take with them, being an inducement to return their people. Um Salama, a wife of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and one of the migrants, has narrated this event at considerable length. According to her, the two clever Quraysh envoys reached Abyssinia in pursuit of the Muslims. Their first act was to distribute lavish gifts amongst Negus courtiers, asking them in return to put collective pressure on Negus to hand over the Muslim migrants. Then they called on Negus, and after presenting him with valuable gifts, they said, Some unripe youths of our town have fled in order to live in your land. 
Our notables have sent us to you with requests for their extradition. These young men have abjured our ancestral faith, but have not entered the fold of your faith. Instead, they have invented a new faith of their own. No sooner had these Quraysh emissaries finished speaking, than Negus's courtiers burst forth, saying, Such people must surely be returned. Their own people know best what is wrong with them. It is inappropriate to let them stay here. Negus, however, was irritated, retorting, I will not return them, for I cannot betray those who escaped their country and reposing trust in my country have sought shelter in it. I will first investigate the truth of the charges leveled against them. Negus therefore sent for the Prophet's companions, asking that they visit his court. On receiving Negus's message, the companions assembled together and decided, after mutual consultation, what they should say to him. Unanimously, they decided that they would faithfully expound to Negus the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, regardless of whether Negus expelled them or let them remain as a result. As soon as the Muslims reached the court, Negus asked, Why did you abandon your ancestral faith, without accepting my faith or any of the faiths of the world? What is this new faith of yours anyway? To this Jafar al-Tayyar, on behalf of the migrants, made an extemporaneous speech. He recalled the religious, moral, and social ills which afflicted the Arabs during the time of ignorance, jahiliya, i.e., the period prior to the advent of Islam. He then mentioned the teachings of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and the persecution to which his followers were subjected in Mecca. He concluded by saying that they had come to the land of Negus in the hope that the wrongs they had been subjected to would now cease. After this speech, Negus asked him to recite a part of the book which he and the other migrants believed to have been revealed by God to their prophet, peace be upon him. Jafar began to recite the opening part of Surah Maryam, which relates to the prophets John and Jesus, peace be upon them. Negus listened to the recitation of the Qur'an in rapt attention, and as he listened he cried, tears flowing from his eyes in such profusion that his beard grew wet. When Jafar's recitation ceased, Negus said, Surely this revelation and the revelation of Jesus, peace be upon him, were from the same source. By God, I will not hand over these persons to you. The next day, Amr ibn al-As spoke to Negus, saying, Just send for them and ask about their belief concerning Jesus, son of Mary, peace be upon him, for they say something blasphemous about him. Negus again sent for the Muslim migrants who had been able ahead of time to get wind of Amr's ruse. Once again they assembled together and discussed what they would say when asked about Jesus, peace be upon him. The situation was a critical one, and naturally everyone was worried. The companions, however, decided that they would simply say what God had stated in the Qur'an about Jesus, peace be upon him, and which had been further elaborated by God's messenger. When they arrived at Negus's court, he put to them that question which had been suggested by Amr ibn As. Without any hesitation, Jafar al-Tayyar replied, He, Jesus, peace be upon him, is God's servant and messenger, a spirit and a word from God that he bestowed on the Virgin Mary. On hearing this, Negus picked up a straw from the ground and said, By God, Jesus, peace be upon him, was not even as much as one straw more than what you have said about him. Negus then returned to the Quraysh the gifts they had presented him with, stating that he was not accustomed to accepting bribery, and that the Muslims might stay in his land without fear. Subject Matter 
When Surah Maryam is viewed against this historical background, the first thing that strikes one about it is that God did not direct the Muslims to make any compromises in matters of faith. Even in the most precarious of circumstances, such as when they went to Abyssinia as a small group of helpless fugitives. Thus, the Muslims were taught to place fidelity to their faith over and above everything else. Additionally, the present surah was granted to the Muslims almost in the way of a provision for their journey, for it enabled them to explain the true position about Jesus, peace be upon him that he was a human being, a prophet, and one of God's messengers, but certainly not God's son. After relating the story of the prophets John and Jesus, peace be upon them, verses 1 to 40, the surah then turns to narrating the story of Abraham, see verses 41 to 50. This, it will be noted, was directly relevant to the conditions of the day. For Abraham, peace be upon him, too, had left his country after persecution at the hands of his father, family, and people. Thus, in effect, the surah told the Meccan unbelievers that the position of the Muslim migrants resembled that of their forefather, Abraham, peace be upon him, and that the position of the Meccan unbelievers was similar to that of Abraham's cruel opponents who banished him from his homeland. At the same time, the Muslim migrants are assured that their migration, like Abraham's, peace be upon him, will not prove their undoing. On the contrary, it would enable them to reach, like Abraham, greater heights of eminence. Their journey, although the culmination of much persecution, was actually a journey to success and glory. Thereafter follows an account of other prophets, see verses 51 to 65, so as to impress upon the Muslims that all prophets expounded the same religion as that put forward by Muhammad, peace be upon him. What doctrinal differences there were between the Muslims and so-called followers of earlier prophets could be explained by the fact that with the passage of time, the latter had gone astray. Their erroneous ways which prevailed at that time were simply the outcome of this error. The concluding verses, verses 66 to 98, represent a scathing criticism of the errors of the Meccan unbelievers. Finally, the Surah ends by announcing good news to the believers. Despite the efforts of their enemies to harm them, they will eventually come out with flying colors, and the very same people who, for the moment at least, opposed them, will eventually lavish their affections on them. <laughs> In the name of Allah, the Most Merciful, the Most Compassionate. Kaf Ha Ya Ain Saad. Likru Rahmati Rabbika Abdahu Zakariya. This is an account of the mercy of your Lord to his servant, Zechariah. This is an account. For comparison, see Al-Imran 3.33 footnote, where, with some minor variation, substantially the same story is recounted. Of the mercy of your Lord to his servant, Zechariah. Zechariah, who is mentioned here, was from the family of Aaron, peace be upon them. For an appropriate understanding of his position, it is necessary to comprehend the Israelites' priestly system. 
after their occupation of Palestine, the Israelites entrusted the government of the land to the twelve tribes, all descended from the prophet Jacob, peace be upon him, by dividing the functions of the government between them, whereas the religious duties were assigned to the thirteenth tribe, the Levites. Even among the Levites, though, the house that was set apart to sanctify the most holy things and to burn incense before the Lord was the house of Aaron, peace be upon him. Other Levites were permitted to enter the temple, but their duties were to assist the sons of Aaron for the service of the house of the Lord, having the care of the courts and the chambers, the cleansing of all that is holy, and any work for the service of the house of God. They were also required to stand every morning thanking and praising the Lord, and likewise at evening, and whenever burnt offerings are offered to the Lord on Sabbaths, new moons, and feast days. The descendants of Aaron, peace be upon him, comprised twenty-four houses, and these performed their duties in turn. One of these was the house of Abijah, whose chief was Zechariah. Whenever it was his house's turn to serve the temple, it was Zechariah's duty to go there and burn the incense. When he cried to his Lord in secret, He said, Lord, my bones have grown feeble and my head is glistening with age. Yet never have my prayers to you, my Lord, been unfruitful. I fear after me evil from my kinsmen, and my wife is barren, so grant me an heir out of your special grace. I fear after me evil from my kinsmen. What Zechariah meant was that he did not see any suitable successor in the house of Abijah who could hold his office after his death. No one in his family had the religious and moral qualities essential for shouldering the task which had so far been entrusted to him. He perceived that future generations held little promise. One that might be my heir, and the heir of the house of Jacob, peace be upon him, and make him, Lord, one that will be pleasing to you. One that might be my heir, and the heir of the house of Jacob, peace be upon him. He was not only concerned as an individual that he should have a good successor. What is more, he was looking for someone who would inherit all the virtues of the house of Israel. He was told, Zechariah, we bring you the good news of the birth of a son whose name shall be Yahya, John, one whose namesake we never created before. He was told, Zechariah, we bring you the good news of the birth of a son whose name shall be Yahya, John, one whose namesake we never created before. According to Luke, none of your kindred is called by this name. Luke 161. 
قَالَ رَبِّ أَنَّا يَكُونُ لِي غُلَامٌ وَكَانَتِ امْرَأَتِي عَاقِرًا وَقَدْ بَلَغْتُ مِنَ الْكِبَرِ عِتِيًّا He said, My Lord, how can I have a boy when my wife is barren, and I have reached an extremely old age? قَالَ كَذَلِكَ قَالَ رَبُّكَ هُوَ عَلَيَّ هَيِّنٌ وَقَدْ خَلَقْتُكَ مِنْ قَبْلُ وَلَمْ تَكُ شَيْئًا He answered, So shall it be. Your Lord says, It is easy for me. And then added, For beyond doubt, I created you earlier when you were nothing. He answered, So shall it be. Your Lord says, It is easy for me. And then added, For beyond doubt, I created you earlier when you were nothing. One should take particular note of this conversation between Zechariah and the angel. For it is the same statement, viz., that the creation of a child is easy for God, even when the usual causes of such a birth do not exist, which occurs a little later in the Surah, when the story of Mary is recounted. See verse 17. It is obvious that the same statement, although appearing in two places, has the same meaning. Zechariah asks the angel how, given he is age-stricken and his wife barren, a son can be born to him. The angel simply replies, so shall it be. In other words, he tells Zechariah that notwithstanding his old age and his wife's barrenness, he will be blessed with a son. In this context, the angel obviously refers to God's infinite power, God who has brought man into existence from a state of non-existence. If God can create a being from total non-existence, how can it possibly be difficult for him to grant a son to one who has fallen into old age and whose wife is barren? قَالَ رَبِّ جَعَلْ لِي آيَةٌ قَالَ آيَتُكَ أَلَّا تُكَلِّمَ النَّاسَ ثَلَاثَ لَيَالٍ سَوِيَّا Zechariah said, Lord, grant me a sign, said he. Your sign is that you shall not be able to speak to people for three nights, though you will be otherwise sound. فَخَرَجَ عَلَى قَوْمِهِ مِنَ الْمِحْرَابِ فَأَوْحَى إِلَيْهِمْ أَن سَبِّحُوا بُكْرَةً Thereupon Zechariah came out from the sanctuary and directed his people by gestures to extol his glory by day and by night. Thereupon Zechariah came out from the sanctuary for the meaning of mihrab, see Towards Understanding the Qur'an, Volume 1, Al-Imran 3, Note 36, Paragraph 249-50. And directed his people by gestures to extol his glory by day and by night. The relevant biblical account of the event as narrated in Luke is reproduced below. This will enable the reader to have a comparative view of both the Qur'anic and biblical accounts. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah on the division of Abijah, and he had a wife of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, it fell to him by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he shall drink no wine nor strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord of their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things come to pass, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he made signs to them, and remained dumb. Luke 1 522. O John, hold fast the book with all your strength. We had bestowed wisdom upon him while he was still a child. O John, hold fast the book with all your strength. The Quranic narrative does not mention certain details of John's story, peace be upon him his birth under God's special command, and his attainment of youth. Omitting all this, the Qur'an mentions the mission entrusted to John, peace be upon him, when he attained maturity. This mission is referred to in just a single sentence on the occasion of his designation to the office of prophethood. That mission consisted of adhering to the Torah and to making efforts to ensure that the Israelites did the same. We had bestowed wisdom of the word hukam connotes the power of making the right decision, the ability to apply the principles of faith to changing circumstances, and the capacity to comprehend the teachings of the faith both in letter and spirit. It also connotes the ability to arrive at correct judgments and to have the authority from God to judge things. <laughs> And we also endowed him with tenderness and purity, and he was exceedingly pious. And we also endowed him with tenderness. The Quran uses the word Hanan, which roughly denotes the love and compassion characteristic of mothers. See Han in Ibn Manzur Lisan al Arab. The idea is that John's compassion for God's creatures was comparable to a mother's compassion for her children. And cherishing to his parents. Never was he insolent or rebellious. 
Peace be upon him, the day he was born, and the day he will die, and the day he will be raised up alive. Peace be upon him, the day he was born, and the day he will die, and the day he will be raised up alive. The biblical account of the Prophet John's life, peace be upon him, and work can be found in different parts of the Bible. In what follows below, we have attempted to develop an integral image of John with the help of these various statements, hoping that the statements made about him in the Quran, both here and in Surah Al-Imran, will be thereby further. According to Luke, John, peace be upon him, was older than Jesus, peace be upon him, by six months. His mother and Jesus' mother were close relatives. John was designated to prophethood when he was about 30 years old. According to the book of John, it was in Jordan that he commenced his prophetic mission, inviting people to turn to God in penitence. He told people, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said, peace be upon him. John 1.23 According to Mark, John, peace be upon him, asked people to repent and baptize those who did so. This meant that he would have people repent and then take baptism in order that they become clean both in body and soul. A large number of people both in Judea and Jerusalem became his devotees and went to him for baptism. Mark 1, 4-5 He therefore came to be known as John the Baptist, peace be upon him. The Israelites in general recognized him as a prophet. Matthew 21-26 Jesus, peace be upon him, said of him, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no one greater than John the Baptist, peace be upon him. John, peace be upon him, wore a garment made of camel's hair and had a leather girdle around his waist. His staple diet consisted of locusts and honey, Matthew 3, 4. Leading such an ascetic life, John, peace be upon him, would proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. This meant that Jesus' prophethood, peace be upon him, and the mission were close at hand. John, peace be upon him, is therefore known as Jesus' Idhas, precursor, peace be upon them. For the meaning of Idhas, see Lisanul Arab. The Quran makes the same point. Allah gives you good tidings of John who shall confirm a command of Allah. Al-Imran 3, 39. Peace be upon him. John, peace be upon him, urged people to pray and fast. For the praying and fasting of John's followers, see Matthew 9.14, Luke 3.3, 3, 5.33, and 11.1. He also said, He who has two coats, let him share with him who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. Luke 3.11 Tax collectors asked him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than is appointed you. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Rob no one by violence or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. See Luke three twelve to 14 When the Pharisees and Sadducees, people immersed in evil ways, came to him for baptism, he retorted, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham, peace be upon him, as our father. 
Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Matthew 3, 7-10 The ruler of the day, in whose domain John carried out his mission, was a Jew by the name of Herod. Herod, however, was immersed in the ways of the Romans, with the net result that corruption and immorality spread far and wide. Indeed, Herod himself was so perverse that he had Herodias, his brother's wife, live with him in his house. John reproached Herod at this, peace be upon him, raising his voice in protest at such insensuous behavior. Before long, Herod had John, peace be upon him, arrested, casting him into prison. But at the same time, Herod knew that John, peace be upon him, was a pious and truthful person and honored him in his heart on that account. He also held him in some awe as a result of his influence on the public. Herodias, however, burned with rage against John. The moral consciousness which he aroused inevitably meant that women of her ilk were stigmatized. Hence, she wanted John beheaded, peace be upon him. The whole story is ably narrated in Matthew. Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter, peace be upon him. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, peace be upon him. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Matthew fourteen three to 11 See also Mark six seventeen to 29 Luke three nineteen to 20 واذكر في الكتاب مريم إذ انتبذت من أهلها مكانا شرقيا O Muhammad, peace be upon him, recite in the book the account of Mary when she withdrew from her people to a place towards the east. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, recite in the book the account of Mary for comparison, see towards Understanding the Qur'an, Volume 1, Al-Imran 3, Note 42, Paragraph 251-2, and Volume 2, Al-Nisa 4, Notes 190-1, Paragraph 105-7. فَأَرْسَلْنَا إِلَيْهَا رُوحَنَا فَتَمَثَّلَ لَهَا بَشَرًا سَوِيًّا And drew a curtain, screening herself from people, whereupon we sent to her our spirit, and he appeared to her as a well-shaped man. And drew a curtain, screening herself from people. We learn from Surah Al-Imran, see verse 35 that Mary's mother had vowed that Mary would be solely consecrated to the worship of God. In keeping with this vow, Mary was taken to Jerusalem where Zechariah was to look after her. It is also stated there that Mary retreated to a sanctuary in Jerusalem. Here we are told that the location of that sanctuary was in the eastern part of Jerusalem. Following a custom of her time, 
Mary concealed herself from other people by means of a drawn curtain. It is also pertinent at this point to show the error of those who, out of consideration for the biblical account, have expressed the view that the eastern location mentioned in the present verse is Nazareth. This, however, is patently wrong, for Nazareth is situated to the north of Jerusalem, not to the east of it. Mary exclaimed, I surely take refuge from you with the most compassionate Lord, if you are at all God-fearing. He said, I am just a message bearer of your Lord. I have come to grant you a most pure boy. Mary said, How can a boy be born to me when no man has even touched me, nor have I ever been unchast? The angel said, Thus shall it be. Your Lord says, It is easy for me, and we shall do so in order to make him a sign for mankind and a mercy from us. This has been decreed. The angel said, Thus shall it be. Your Lord says, It is easy for me, and we shall do so in order to make him a sign for mankind. We have earlier discussed the significance of the angel's statement, So shall it be. In response to Zechariah's exclamation, see note 6 above. The angel's utterance obviously does not mean that some human being would have physical contact with her, whereby she would give birth to a son. It will be recalled, as we have pointed out, that Zechariah also expressed his amazement at the possibility of a child being born to him in his very old age and when his wife was barren. Significantly, the response of the angel on both counts was exactly the same. So shall it be. Obviously, then, the meaning of both the places is bound to be the same. Likewise, in Surah Al-Dhariyat, the angel gives Abraham, peace be upon him, the good news of the birth of a son. On hearing this, Abraham's wife, too, exclaims incredulously, How would a barren old woman such as herself give birth to a child? To this the angel says the same, So shall it be. See Al-Dhariyat 51.28-30 The meaning then is crystal clear. Sarah would give birth to a son despite her old age and barrenness. Now, were we to take the Quranic statement here to mean that someone would have physical contact with Mary, as a result of which she would give birth in the manner of all other women, then the statements which follow would become meaningless. For, if the birth were to take place according to the known process of procreation, why should the angel say, Your Lord says, This is easy for me, 
and we shall do so in order to make him a sign for mankind and a mercy from us. Verse 21. The word ayah, sign, in this context, definitely signifies miracle. The same is corroborated by the following part of the verse. That is easy for me. Thus, what is being said here can only mean one thing, that this child's birth would be a miracle which God wanted to place before the Israelites. The details that follow make the miraculous character of Jesus, peace be upon him, even more evident. Then she conceived him and withdrew with him to a far-off place. Then she conceived him and withdrew with him to a far-off place. The Quranic expression, a far-off place, occurs with reference to Bethlehem. It was natural for Mary to move away from her place of confinement in Jerusalem to Bethlehem. She was, as we all know, the daughter of the most pious Israelite family, the house of Aaron, peace be upon him. And she had consecrated herself exclusively to a life of devotion and worship. But then suddenly she became pregnant. Had she stayed on in Jerusalem and her pregnancy been discovered, her life would have been made miserable by all kinds of people, whether by members of her own family or by other Israelites. Hence, Mary simply left her place of worship, hoping that at least until the birth of her child, she would be spared public denunciation, slander, and scandalization. The event itself is strong evidence proving that Jesus, peace be upon him, was indeed born without a father. For had Mary been a married woman, and she had become pregnant by her husband, there was no reason for her to abandon all her relatives and head to a far-off place merely to give birth to her child. Then the birth pangs drove her to the trunk of a palm tree, and she said, Oh, would that I had died before this, and had been all forgotten. Then the birth pangs drove her to the trunk of a palm tree, and she said, Oh, would that I had died before this, and had been all forgotten. This verse enables one to gauge Mary's suffering and anguish. If one remembers the gravity of the situation, it is easy to grasp that she did not utter these words because of intense labor pains. Rather, what tormented her was the awkward situation in which she found herself, and she did not know how she was going to come out of it. For up until then, she had somehow been able to hide her pregnancy. But once the child was born, she could no longer hide the situation. The consoling words of the angel, Grieve not, verse 24, also indicate why Mary had uttered those anguished words. For the psychology of a married woman who gives birth to her first child is well known. Even when she rides in unbearable pain, she is far removed from grief and sorrow. Thereupon the angel at the foot of her cried out, Grieve not, for your Lord has caused a stream of water to flow beneath you. 
إِلَيْكِ بِجِذْعِ النَّخْلَةِ تُسَاقِطَ عَلَيْكِ رُطَبًا جَنِيًّا Shake the trunk of the palm tree towards yourself, and fresh and ripe dates shall fall upon you. فَكُلِي وَاشْرَبِي وَقَرِّي عَيْنًا فَإِمَّا تَرَيْنَّ مِنَ الْبَشَرِ أَحَدًا فَقُولِي إِنِّي نَذَرْتُ لِلرَّحْمَنِ صَوْمًا فَقُولِي إِنِّي نَذَرْتُ لِلرَّحْمَنِ صَوْمًا فَلَنْ أُكَلِّمَ الْيَوْمَ إِنْسِيًّا So eat and drink and cool your eyes, and if you see any person, say to him, Verily, I have vowed a fast to the most compassionate Lord, and so I shall not speak to anyone today. So eat and drink and cool your eyes, and if you see any person, say to him, Verily, I have vowed a fast to the most compassionate Lord, and so I shall not speak to anyone today. Mary was asked to say nothing concerning the baby. If anyone raised an accusing finger at the child's birth, it would be for God to explain the reality of the matter. It may be recalled that this type of fast, a fast involving abstinence from speech, was quite customary among the Israelites. This directive is also suggestive of the true reason for Mary's disconcertion. It is also worth considering why a married woman giving birth to her first child would have resorted to a fast of silence. فأتت به قومها تحمله قالوا يا مريم لقد جئت شيئا فريا Then she came to her people carrying her baby. They said, O oh Mary, you have committed a monstrous thing. يا أخت هارون ما كان أبوك امرأ سوء وما كانت أمك بغيا O sister of Aaron, your father was not an evil man, nor was your mother an unchaste woman. O sister of Aaron, your father was not an evil man, nor was your mother an unchaste woman. This may be interpreted in two ways. Taken literally, it may mean that Mary had a brother named Aaron. Alternatively, in accordance with Arabic idiom, it may be taken to mean that she was a member of Aaron's house, peace be upon him. For according to the known Arabic linguistic tradition, a person is referred to as the brother of the tribe to which he belongs. If a person belongs to Mudar, he is at times addressed, O brother of Mudar, or as a brother of Hamadan, if he belongs to Hamadan. There are reasons to support each of these two interpretations. As for the first, there are traditions from the Prophet, peace be upon him, saying so. As for the second, it seems to be supported by the context. For the event gave rise to such a commotion among the people that it can hardly be considered to be simply the case of the virgin sister of some unknown person called Aaron who returned home with a newborn baby. What enraged the public was that the apparently scandalous incident involved a girl who belonged to the most highly pious Israelite family, the house of Aaron, peace be upon him. In principle, when there is a tradition which can be traced back to the Prophet, peace be upon him, no other interpretation is admissible.
However, when we consider the actual words of the tradition concerned in Muslim, Al-Nasai and Al-Tirmidhi, it becomes clear that they necessarily mean that Mary had a brother named Aaron. In the report narrated by Mughira ibn Shuba, it is stated that a Christian from Najran raised the objection that the Qur'an spoke of Mary as Aaron's sister while Aaron had passed away centuries before her. Mughira ibn Shuba was unable to provide any satisfactory explanation, and so he placed the matter before the Prophet, peace be upon him. The Prophet, peace be upon him, said, Why did you not tell them that the Israelites used to name their children after messengers and other righteous persons? What this statement suggests is that the objection could have been resolved in that manner, and that instead of cutting a sorry figure, Mughira could have given a satisfactory answer by responding in such a way. 19a. Those who deny the miraculous birth of Jesus, peace be upon him, can hardly explain the people's uproar when Mary returned to them with her baby. Nothing else but the birth of a child to an unmarried girl could explain such outraged feelings. Thereupon, Mary pointed to the child. They exclaimed, How can we speak to one who is in the cradle, a mere child? Thereupon, Mary pointed to the child. They exclaimed, How can we speak to one who is in the cradle, a mere child? Some of those who have been engaged in distorting the meaning of the Qur'an have been inclined to put the following interpretation on this verse. What should we talk to him who is merely a child of yesterday? They thus hold that this conversation took place at a time when Jesus, peace be upon him, was in his youth. The elderly Israelites were contemptuously disinclined to talk with him who was so much younger than themselves, someone who not long ago used to lie in his cradle before their very eyes. Anyone who cares to consider the verse in its correct context, however, will instantly realize that this interpretation is simply absurd. It also becomes obvious the recourse that has been made to this far-fetched interpretation merely because of the disinclination of the person's concern to affirm miracles. However, such people have allowed themselves to disregard the fact that such objections were made at the time of Jesus' birth and not when he had grown into a young man, peace be upon him. Moreover, there are other Quranic verses, see Al-Imran 3, 46 and Al-Maida 5.113 which mention Jesus, peace be upon him, as uttering these words while he was a baby and in his cradle. We learn from Al-Imran 3.46 that the angel, while giving the good news of the coming birth of a son to Mary, also said that Jesus, peace be upon him, would speak to people both while in his cradle and as a youth. In Surah Al-Maida 5.113, God Himself tells Jesus, peace be upon Him, that He will speak to people while still in His cradle as well as during His youth. 20a. It is significant here that Jesus is not mentioned as one who is dutiful to His parents, but rather as one who is dutiful to His mother. This itself suggests that He did not have a father. Evidence which further corroborates this is that Jesus, peace be upon him, is invariably referred to in the Qur'an as Jesus, son of Mary, peace be upon him. The child cried out, 
Verily, I am Allah's servant. He has granted me the book and has made me a prophet. And has blessed me wherever I might be and has enjoined upon me prayer and zakah, purifying alms, as long as I live. And has made me dutiful to my mother. He has not made me oppressive nor bereft of God's blessings. Peace be upon me the day I was born, and the day I will die, and the day I will be raised up alive. Peace be upon me the day I was born, and the day I will die, and the day I will be raised up alive. The sign referred to above is the person of the Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him, who was presented as a miracle before the Israelites. Before punishing the Israelites for their persistent wickedness and corruption, God wanted to make things indubitably clear so that they were left with no excuses for their errors. This was done in the following manner. A God-fearing and devout girl of the house of Aaron who had been set apart for a life of devotion in Jerusalem and who had been under the care and guidance of Zechariah became, by God's will, pregnant while she was still a virgin. All this was with a particular design in mind, the purpose being that when she appeared with a child in her lap, creating a huge uproar within the nation, and when virtually the entire Israelite nation, in a state of anger and disgust, thronged around Mary, God made the baby speak to them. Thereafter, when that same child had attained maturity and claimed to be a prophet, thousands could testify to the earlier miracle they themselves had witnessed. For instance, Jesus, peace be upon him, speaking from his cradle. Now, if those people still refused to recognize him as a prophet, and instead of dutifully following him, charged him with being a criminal and sought to crucify him, they should be dealt a punishment more severe than that meted out to all other peoples. This is Jesus, the son of Mary, peace be upon him. And this is the truth about him concerning which they are in doubt. It does not behove Allah to take for Himself a son. Glory be to Him. When He decrees a thing, He only says, Be, and it is. It does not behove Allah to take for Himself a son. Glory be to Him. When He decrees a thing, He only says, Be, and it is. The thrust of the argument so far clearly reveals that the Christian belief in Jesus, peace be upon Him, is false. Although John was born in a miraculous manner, peace be upon Him, this birth did not make Him God's Son. Similarly, although Jesus, peace be upon Him, too, was born by means of another miracle, this in no way provided any reason for considering Him to be God's Son. 
Jesus' birth, peace be upon him, was no more miraculous than John's, peace be upon him. And there are no grounds for referring to John as God's son. Remember that according to reports which are accepted by Christians, both John and Jesus, peace be upon them, were born miraculously. In Luke, both miracles are described in terms which bear close resemblance to the Quranic version of the miracles. Hence, the Christian exaltation of Jesus, peace be upon him, as God's Son, is simply an act of doctrinal exaggeration, which is shorn of all justification. Jesus, peace be upon him, had said, Indeed, Allah is my Lord and your Lord, so serve him alone. This is the straight way. Jesus, peace be upon him, had said, Indeed, Allah is my Lord and your Lord, so serve him alone. This is the straight way. The Christians are told that Jesus' message, peace be upon him, was the same as that of all other prophets before him. He called people to serve none but the one true God. It was they, the Christians, who made Jesus, peace be upon him, a servant of God into God, and associated someone other than God in his divinity. This was merely an innovation of the Christians themselves, an innovation with which Jesus, whom they claimed to follow, had nothing to do with. But different parties began to dispute with one another. A dreadful woe awaits on that great day for those that reject the truth. But different parties, references made here to the various Christian sects which hold mutually differing views. How well shall they hear and how well shall they see on the day they come to us? But today the evildoers are in manifest error. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, warn those who are steeped in heedlessness and are obstinately rejecting the truth that the day shall come when things will be finally decided and they shall be left with utter remorse. Ultimately, we shall inherit the earth and whatever is on it. To us shall they be returned. Ultimately, we shall inherit the earth and whatever is on it. To us shall they be returned. This concludes the discourse as addressed to the Christians. For a proper understanding of its significance, one should recall the historical background to the surah as stated in its introductory section. See paragraphs 139 to 43 above. The present discourse was revealed at a time when the oppressed Meccan Muslims were making their way towards Abyssinia to seek refuge in that Christian dominion. 
The purpose of revelation of the discourse, therefore, seems to have been to enable the Muslims to come forward with this official and authoritative statement whenever questions about the Islamic standpoint on Jesus, peace be upon him, might arise. Additionally, the discourse seeks to establish the fact that Islam teaches Muslims not to make any compromise in matters relating to truth. The religious fervor of these righteous Muslim migrants to Abyssinia is all the more remarkable since they expressed the true doctrinal position about Jesus, peace be upon him, before the court of a Christian emperor at a time when that court was strongly inclined to accept a bribe to hand them over to their enemies. It was obvious to the Muslims that their fortright criticism of the Christian doctrine might enrage Negus and that, as a result, he might return them to the ruthless Makkanan believers. Notwithstanding the precariousness of their situation, they showed remarkable strength of faith and showed not even the slightest hesitation in speaking the truth. واذكر في الكتاب إبراهيم إنه كان صديقا نبيا O Muhammad, peace be upon him, recite in the book the account of Abraham, peace be upon him. Most surely he was a man of truth, a prophet. O Muhammad, peace be upon him, recite in the book the account of Abraham, from here onwards, the discourse is addressed to the Makkans who had compelled their own sons, brothers, and all manner of relatives to leave their hearts and homes for the simple reason that they worshipped the one true God. The plight of these Muslims resembled that of the Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, who had earlier been forced by his father and by his kith and kin to say adieu to his homeland. The reason for recounting the Prophet Abraham, peace be upon him, story to the exclusion of other prophets is that the Quraysh considered Abraham, peace be upon him, to be their patriarch, bragging about their descent from him in order to reinforce their preeminence throughout the whole of Arabia. <laughs> And remind people, when he said to his father, Father, why do you worship that which neither sees nor hears, and which can be of no avail to you? Father, a knowledge that has not reached you has come to me. So follow me, that I may guide you to a straight way. Father, do not serve Satan, for Satan has indeed been a persistent rebel against the most compassionate Lord. Father, do not serve Satan. The Quran says, do not serve Satan. This was said even though Abraham's father, peace be upon him, and his people worshipped idols. The statement, do not serve Satan, is made because those people followed the behests of Satan. We thus learn that worship does not only mean a set of rituals, but also covers obedience. 
Another point that emerges from this statement is that if a person unreservedly obeys someone, he is guilty of worshipping him even if he lavishes curses upon him. This is quite obvious given that human beings have never declared Satan to be the object of their devotional worship. On the contrary, they have always cursed him. Father, I fear that a punishment from the most compassionate Lord might strike you, and you may end up as one of Satan's companions. The father said, Abraham, peace be upon him, have you turned away from my gods? If you do not give this up, I shall stone you to death. Now be gone from me forever. Abraham, peace be upon him, answered, Peace be upon you. I shall seek pardon for you from my Lord. My Lord has always been kind to me. Abraham, peace be upon him, answered, Peace be upon you. I shall seek pardon for you from my Lord. For further elaboration, see towards Understanding the Quran, Volume 3, Al-Tawbah 9, Note 112, Paragraph 262-3. وَأَعْتَزِلُكُمْ وَمَا تَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ وَأَدْعُو رَبِّي عَسَىٰ أَلَّا أَكُونَ بِدُعَاءِ رَبِّي شَقِيًّا I shall withdraw from you and all that you call upon beside Allah. I shall only call upon my Lord. I trust the prayer to my Lord will not go unanswered. Thereupon, after Abraham, peace be upon him, withdrew from his people and all whom they serve beside Allah, we bestowed upon him Isaac and Jacob, peace be upon them, and made each of them a prophet. And we bestowed on them our mercy and granted them a truly lofty renown. And we bestowed on them our mercy and granted them a truly lofty renown. This is intended to console and comfort the Muslim migrants who had been forced to forsake their homeland. They're being told that when Abraham surrendered his ties with his family, he courted no disaster. On the contrary, he eventually attained a much higher position. Likewise, the migration of the Prophet's followers will not bring about their ruination. Rather, they will rise to heights of eminence which the Meccan unbelievers could not even have dreamed of before the advent of Islam. 
And recite in the book the account of Moses, peace be upon him. He was a chosen person, a messenger, a prophet. And recite in the book the account of Moses, peace be upon him. He was a chosen person. The word mukhlas used here denotes he who had been selected by God as exclusively his own. A messenger, a prophet. The word rasul literally means the one sent. For this reason it is used to denote the envoy, the message bearer, the emissary, the ambassador. In the Quran it is employed for angels who are entrusted by God with some special mission or for those human beings who are assigned the task of communicating his message to his creatures. Lexicographers disagree as to the exact meaning of the word Nabi. Some consider it to be the derivative of the word Naba'a and denotes to give news, and hence the word Nabi means someone who brings news. Others consider it to be derived from Nabu, meaning height and elevation. Accordingly, Nabi is a person who holds a high elevated position. Quoting the authority of Al-Kisai Al-Azari, has put forward an altogether different source, Nabiya, meaning way. Thus, a Nabi is someone who directs to the way that leads to God. In sum, when someone is called Rasul Nabi, it either means a messenger of high standing, a messenger who brings news from God, or a messenger who directs people to the way leading to God. So far as the two words Nabi and Rasul are concerned, they are generally used in the Qur'an as equivalents. We note that on some occasions a person is referred to simply as Rasul, messenger, whereas on others he is called Nabi, prophet. On yet further occasions, both words are used in conjunction with each other for the same person. There are also instances where the two words are employed in such a manner which distinguishes between a prophet and a messenger in respect of their status or the nature of their assignment. For instance, in Surah Al-Hajj, it is said, Never did we send a messenger or a prophet before you except Al-Hajj 22.52. This clearly indicates that the messenger and the prophet represent two distinct entities. As a result, commentators on the Qur'an have engaged in serious discussions about the nature of these differences between a prophet and a messenger. The fact, however, remains that these scholars have failed to persuasively establish the precise nature of any difference between a messenger and a prophet. All that can be said with certainty is that the word messenger, rasul, has a more restrictive connotation than the word prophet, nabi. Hence, while every messenger is a prophet, every prophet does not enjoy the status of a messenger. In other words, Rasul, messenger, is used for those great figures who had been assigned duties of greater significance than those assigned to mere prophets. This point is further corroborated by the tradition reported by Ahmed ibn Hanbal from Abu Umama and by Hakim and Abu Dhar. According to this tradition, Muhammad, peace be upon him, was asked about the number of messengers. He replied that there were 313 or 315 in number, whereas when asked about the number of prophets, he mentioned their number to be 124,000. Although the chains of transmission of this hadith are weak, it has been reported in such a variety of ways and to such a great extent that this weakness is compensated for. 
وَنَادَيْنَاهُ مِنْ جَانِبِ الطُّورِ الْأَيْمَنِ وَقَرَّبْنَاهُ نَجِيًّا We called out to him from the right side of the mount, and we drew him near to us by communing to him in secret. We called out to him from the right side of the mount. The right side of Mount Tur, for instance Sinai, refers to its eastern side. The Prophet Moses, peace be upon him, on his way from Midian to Egypt, took the route which passes the southern side of the mount. Were anyone to look at the mount from its southern side, the east would be to his right, and the western side would be to his left. Hence it is with context to the Prophet Moses' vantage point, peace be upon him, that the eastern side is mentioned as lying to the right. Devoid of that reference, it is quite obvious that a mountain as such can neither have any right side nor any left. And we drew him near to us by communing to him in secret. For further explanation, see towards understanding the Quran, volume 2, Al-Nisa 4, note 206, paragraphs 114 to 15. وَوَهَبْنَا لَهُ مِنْ رَحْمَتِنَا أَقَاهُ هَارُونَ نَبِيًّا And out of our mercy we appointed his brother Aaron, peace be upon him, a prophet, that he may assist him. وَاذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ إِسْمَاعِيلِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ صَادِقَ الْوَعْدِ وَكَانَ رَسُولًا and recite in the book the account of Ishmael, peace be upon him. He was ever true to his promise and was a messenger, a prophet. He enjoined his household to observe prayer and to give zakah, purifying alms, and his Lord was well pleased with him. وَاذْكُرْ فِي الْكِتَابِ إِدْرِيسِ إِنَّهُ كَانَ صِدِّيقًا نَبِيًّا And recite in the book the account of Idris, peace be upon him. He was a man of truth, a prophet. And recite in the book the account of Idris. There is some disagreement concerning the prophet Idris, Enoch, peace be upon him. Whilst some scholars regard him as an Israeli prophet, the majority of scholars believe that Enoch lived at a time prior even to that of the prophet Noah, peace be upon him. There are authentic hadiths to help us establish the historicity of the prophet Enoch, peace be upon him. However, there seems to be some indication at one place in the Quran that he did appear before the time of Noah, peace be upon him. These are the prophets upon whom Allah bestowed His favor from the seed of Adam and from the seed of those whom we carried in the ark with Noah, peace be upon him, and from the seed of Abraham and Israel, peace be upon them. Verse 58 Of the messengers mentioned here, John, Jesus, and Moses, peace be upon them, are descendants of Israel and Ishmael, Isaac and Jacob, are descendants of Abraham, and Abraham is a descendant of Noah, peace be upon them. This leaves only Idris, and it is him alone that the expression descendant of Adam might be applied. It should also be pointed out that commentators on the Quran generally believe that the biblical figure of Enoch is identical with the prophet called Idris in the Quran, peace be upon him. The biblical account of Enoch is narrated as follows. 
When Enoch had lived sixty-five years, he became the father of Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after the birth of Methuselah three hundred years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Genesis 5.21-4 Israelite traditions in the Talmud describe Enoch in greater detail, peace be upon him. These traditions state that at some time before the advent of the prophet Noah, peace be upon him, people had taken to evil ways, and that it was then that God's angel cried out the following to Enoch, peace be upon him, who up until then had lived in seclusion and who was devoted to a life of asceticism. Arise, go forth from thy solitude and walk among the people of the land. Teach them the way they should go and instruct them in the actions they should perform. And Enoch did as the Lord commanded him. He walked among the people and taught them the ways of the Creator, assembling them together and addressing them in earnestness and truth. And Enoch, peace be upon him, reigned over the human race for three hundred and fifty years. In justice and righteousness he ruled, and peace blessed the land during all this period. The Talmud Selections, paragraphs 18 to 21. وَرَفَعْنَاهُ مَكَانًا عَلِيًّا And we exalted him to a lofty position. And we exalted him to a lofty position. The statement here simply means that God granted Enoch, peace be upon him, a high position. Under the influence of Israelite traditions, however, many Muslims have come to believe that God raised him to the heavens. So far as the Bible is concerned, it only claims that he disappeared. The Talmudic account, however, is embellished with a great many details. It ends with the following statement, And on the seventh day, Enoch, peace be upon him, ascended to heaven in a whirlwind with chariot and horses of fire. The Talmud Selections, paragraph 21. أُولَٰئِكَ الَّذِينَ أَنْعَمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِمْ مِنَ النَّبِيِّينَ مِنْ ذُرِّيَّةِ آدَمَ وَمِمَّنْ حَمَلْنَا وَمِمَّنْ حَمَلْنَا مَعَ نُوحٍ وَمِنْ ذُرِّيَّةِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ وَإِسْرَائِيلَ وَمِنْ These are the prophets upon whom Allah bestowed His favor from the seed of Adam, peace be upon him, and from the seed of those whom we carried in the ark with Noah, peace be upon him, and from the seed of Abraham and Israel, peace be upon them. They were those whom we guided and chose for an exalted position. They were such that when the words of the most compassionate Lord were recited to them, they fell down in prostration, weeping. They were succeeded by a people who neglected the prayers and pursued their lusts. They shall presently meet with their doom. They were succeeded by a people who neglected the prayers and pursued their lusts. They either gave up observing prayers or became indifferent or negligent to them. In fact, negligence and abandoning prayer are the very first step in a people's slide towards their decline. 
For prayer is the primary link between man and God. Prayer keeps a person constantly in touch with God during all hours of the day and night. Prayer prevents a person from moving away from a life of devotion, worship, and obedience of Him. As soon as this bond is broken, man increasingly begins to draw away from God. This may even happen to such an extent that not only is man's relationship with God reduced to naught on a practical level, but also on an intellectual level. It is for this reason that the Qur'an expounds here a general rule, that the corruption in a nation which originally followed a prophet began the moment that nation abandoned prayer. They shall presently meet with their doom. Following one's lusts and desires rather than truth and justice naturally results from the weakening of one's God-consciousness. When a person becomes heedless of God and abandons prayer, he comes increasingly into the grip of his own carnal desires. Eventually, he becomes impervious to all God's commands, despite the fact that these had earlier shaped his morality and conduct. Instead, bit by bit, he begins to follow all those ways which conform to his own likes and dislikes. Except those who repent and believe and act righteously, such shall enter paradise and shall not be wronged at all. Theirs shall be everlasting gardens which the most compassionate Lord has promised His servants in a realm which is beyond the ken of perception. Surely His promise shall be fulfilled. Theirs shall be everlasting gardens which the most compassionate Lord has promised His servants in a realm which is beyond the ken of perception. This refers to the gardens promised to the believers by God, gardens which are beyond the ken of their senses. They shall not hear in it anything vain. They shall hear only what is good, and they shall have their provision in it, morning and evening. They shall not hear in it anything vain. They shall hear only what is good. The word used here, salam, denotes that which is free from all flaws and imperfections. Of the numerous blessings bestowed on man in paradise, one of these will be that he will not encounter anything vulgar, stupid or filthy. The prevailing atmosphere in paradise will be one of elegance and decency, and all its inmates will be people possessed of good taste. Hence, all those who abide in paradise will hear neither abuse, nor slander, nor obscenity. Their ears will hear only those things which are good and decent. The import of this great blessing can only be appreciated by people whose tastes have not been impaired. Such persons can well appreciate what a torture it is for a person of good taste to be placed in a milieu where he is exposed to lies, slander, mischievous statements, obscenity, and vulgarity. This is the 
Such is the paradise which we shall cause those of our servants who have been God-fearing to inherit. The angels will say, O Muhammad, peace be upon him, we descend not except by the command of your Lord. To him belongs all that is before us and all that is behind us and all that is in between. Your Lord is not forgetful in the least. The angels will say, O Muhammad, peace be upon him, this whole paragraph is in fact a parenthetical statement which marks the conclusion of one discourse and which serves as a prelude to another. The style adopted here suggests that this Sutta was revealed some time after the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions had gone through trying circumstances, whereby they constantly waited for revelation to guide and comfort them. This time gap in revelation, therefore, distressed them greatly. It was against this background that Gabriel came down to the Prophet, peace be upon him, along with a retinue of other angels. First of all, he proclaimed that command which was urgently required under the circumstances, but before proceeding further, he said something which at once explained his prolonged absence. He spoke words of comfort from God, as well as an exhortation to the believers to remain patient and restrained. What is said above is not only borne out by internal evidence, it is also corroborated by several traditions which have been quoted by Al-Tabari, Ibn Kasir, and Al-Alusi, the author of Ru al-Mani, in their works of Quranic exegesis. <laughs> He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth and all that is in between. Serve Him then and be constant in serving Him. Do you know anyone that might be His compeer? He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth and all that is in between. Serve Him then and be constant in serving Him. Believers are directed to steadfastly adhere to God's service and to bear all the sufferings which they might encounter with patience. They are told that if there occurs any delay in providing them with support and comfort, they should not lose heart. An obedient believer is required to be content in all circumstances with God's will and to persevere with full determination in the task assigned to him as God's servant. Do you know anyone that might be his compeer? The word Sami means namesake or homonym. The purpose of the statement is to emphasize that God alone is the one true God, and no one else holds that position. And if indeed there is no other God, and they know that this is the case, there is no other than Him to worship and serve. <laughs> Man is prone to say, Shall I be raised to life after I die? Does man not remember that we created him before when he was nothing? 
By your Lord, we will surely muster them and the devils together. Then we will surely bring them all on their knees around hell. By your Lord, we will surely muster them and the devils together. This refers to those devils under whose influence the unbelievers regarded the life in this world as the only life and thereby denied the next life where all will be called to account. And then we will draw aside from each party those who were most rebellious against the most compassionate Lord. And then we will draw aside from each party those who were most rebellious against the most compassionate Lord. This alludes to the leaders of the groups that defied God's commands. And then we shall know well all those most worthy to be cast in hell. There is not one of you but shall pass by hell. This is a decree which your Lord will fulfill. There is not one of you but shall pass by hell. The word Varid, according to some traditions, signifies one who enters. These traditions, however, are not backed up by a chain of authentic narrations going back to the Prophet, peace be upon him. Moreover, this interpretation is contrary to the teachings of the Qur'an and a large number of authentic traditions which exclude righteous believers from entering hell. Furthermore, this view is not supported by lexical evidence, for indeed, varud does not mean entrance. What is meant by this verse, therefore, is that everyone will pass by hell, yet, as stated in the following verse, the pious will be saved from entering it, while the wrongdoers will be hurled into it. Then we shall deliver those that feared Allah and leave the wrongdoers there on their knees. When our clear revelations are recited to those who deny the truth, they are wont to say to those who have faith, which of the two groups has a better status and whose assemblies are grander? When our clear revelations are recited to those who deny the truth, they are wont to say to those who have faith, which of the two groups has a better status and whose assemblies are grander? This was a fallacious argument which the unbelievers often put forward, claiming that it was they rather than the believers upon whom God bounties were lavished. They audaciously asked, Who has more stately houses to live in, the believers or us? Who enjoys higher standards of living? 
the believers or us? Whose assemblies are more splendid and grandiose, the believers or ours? How is it possible, they asked, that those who follow the truth suffer such a miserable lot, whilst those who follow falsehood, as you fancy, prosper? How numerous are the peoples we destroyed before them, those that were more resourceful and grander in outward appearance. Say, the most compassionate Lord grants respite to those who stray into error until they behold what they had been threatened with, either God's chastisement in the world or the hour of resurrection. Then they fully know whose station is worse and who is weaker in hosts. وَيَزِيدُ اللَّهُ الَّذِينَ اهْتَدَوْا هُدَى وَالْبَاقِيَاتُ الصَّالِحَاتُ خَيْرٌ عِنْدَ رَبِّكَ ثَوَابًا وَخَيْرٌ مَرَدًّا On the contrary, Allah increases in guidance those who follow the right way. Lasting acts of righteousness are better in the sight of your Lord as a reward and conducive to a better end. On the contrary, Allah increases in guidance. That is, that whenever adherents to the truth are put to the test, God grants them the ability to judge correctly and to follow the right path. God also protects them from evil and from error. They are constantly helped by God's guidance which enables them to proceed ahead along the right path. أَفَرَأَيْتَ الَّذِي كَفَرَ بِآيَاتِنَا وَقَالَ لَأُوتَيَنَّ مَالًا وَوَلَدًا Have you seen him who rejected our signs and said, Surely I shall continue to be favored with riches and children. Have you seen him who rejected our signs and said, Surely I shall continue to be favored with riches and children. This represents the characteristic mode of thinking of the unbelievers who happen to be well-off and prosperous. Such people tend to impress upon believers that no matter what they claim about the waywardness of unbelievers or say about them being struck down by God's punishment, the fact remains that they seem better off than the believers. Such people also contend that there is every reason to believe that what is happening to them, the unbelievers of the present, will also happen in the future. These people are wont to say exultantly, Look at my riches, at my power and position, at the eminence achieved by my offspring. Do these show that I have been cursed by God? Such thoughts were not merely those of just a few stray Meccan unbelievers, but rather such illusions were entertained by every tribal chief, by every eminent Meccan. Has he obtained knowledge of the unseen or has he taken a covenant with the most compassionate Lord?
By no means, we shall write down all what he says, and we shall greatly prolong his chastisement. By no means, we shall write down all what he says. Such boastful remarks will further compound his crimes, and he will have to pay the price for such outrageous utterances. And we shall inherit all the resources and hosts of which he boasts, and he will come to us all alone. They have taken other gods beside Allah, that they may be a source of strength for them. They have taken other gods beside Allah, that they may be a source of strength for them. The word used in this verse is Izzah, which conveys the meaning of bringing honor and glory. According to Arabic usage, the word denotes one who is so powerful that none will dare try to harm him. See Iz in Ibn Manzur Lisan al-Arab. The idea that someone can be the cause of honor and glory for another person means that the former is so effective a supporter of the other that no enemy will even entertain evil designs against him. By no means, they shall soon deny their worship and shall become their adversaries instead. By no means, they shall soon deny their worship. On the day of judgment, the gods which men have contrived will be utterly powerless and they will declare that they never asked anyone to worship them. They will also say that they were not even aware of the existence of those who were foolish enough to worship them. ألم تر أن أرسلنا الشياطين على الكافرين تؤزهم أزا؟ Do you not see that we have sent devils upon the unbelievers who greatly incite them to oppose the truth؟ فلا تعجل عليهم إنما نعد لهم عدا. Therefore, do not hasten in seeking a scourge against them. We are counting their days. Therefore, do not hasten in seeking a scourge against them. We are counting their days. The Muslims were asked not to get impatient at the excesses the unbelievers committed. For the time for them to be struck by God's punishment had drawn near. They had gone just too far, exceeding all limits. The term granted to them by God was all but over, and one only had to wait a little while before they would be seized by God's scourge. يوم نحشر المتقين إلى الرحمن وفدا. The day shall soon come when we shall bring together the God-fearing to the most compassionate Lord as honored guests. ونسوق المجرمين إلى جهنم وردا. And we shall drive the guilty ones to hell as thirsty animals. لا يملكون الشفاعة إلا من اتخذ عند الرحمن عهدا. On that day, none will have the power to intercede for them except those who received a sanction from the most compassionate Lord. On that day, 
none will have the power to intercede for them except those who received a sanction from the Most Compassionate Lord. The verse seems to suggest two things regarding intercession. Firstly, it will be possible only to intercede for those in whose favor God allows intercession. Secondly, intercession will only be made by those whom God permits to do so. Such are the words of the verse that they seem to embrace both elements. The one who conforms to the first statement is one who has faith and lives a good life in devotion to God, one who is deserving of God's pardon and forgiveness. As for the second statement, it means that God will let it be known who may intervene, and it is only they, no one else, who will be able to intercede. This should dispel the illusions of those who look with great hope at some people, feeling sure that they will intercede on their behalf. What will actually happen is that no one except those whom God permits to intercede will be able to utter even a single word in His presence. They claim, the most compassionate Lord has taken a son to himself. Surely, you have made a monstrous statement. It is such a monstrosity that heavens might well nigh burst forth at it, the earth might be cleaved and the mountains fall. At their ascribing a son to the most compassionate Lord. It does not behove the most compassionate Lord that he should take a son. There is no one in the heavens and the earth, but he shall come to the most compassionate Lord as his servant. Verily, he encompasses them and has counted them all. On the day of resurrection, each one of these will come to him singly. Indeed, the Most Compassionate Lord will soon create enduring love for those who believe and do righteous works. Indeed, the Most Compassionate Lord will soon create enduring love for those who believe and do righteous works. The believers throughout Mecca were at that time subjected to the most abject humiliation. Here, they are being told that that situation will not endure. Soon, they will become God's favorites, the heroes of all mankind, on account of their moral excellence. People will involuntarily be attracted to them. People will simply adore them, bowing to them in respect. As for their opponents, they are doomed with ignominy. Leadership which rests on sin and transgression, on arrogance and trickery, can never win the hearts of people. The most that it can do is force them into outward obedience. Conversely, those who invite people to the right way and are themselves invested with honesty 
veracity, sincerity, and good morals are bound to win over hearts in the end, even if they provoke revulsion at the outset. It is simply impossible for those who lack honesty and sincerity to impede their path for long. Therefore, we have revealed the Qur'an in your tongue and made it easy to understand that you may give glad tidings to the God-fearing and warn a contentious people. How numerous are the peoples that we destroyed before them? Do you perceive any one of them or hear even a whisper of them? <laughs> 